0: I'm
1: Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is writer and artist Susan Finley. She's here to discuss her new book, The Jacques Lacan Foundation. You can find out more at her website, susanfinley.co.uk. That's S U S A N f-i-n-l-a-y dot c-o dot u-k and you can follow her at Instagram at Susan Ellen Finlay links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode Rendering Unconscious podcast is made possible by the support of our Patreon patrons thank you so much to everyone in our Patreon community now and throughout the years Recently, we've shifted our platform so that every person in our Patreon community receives our posts every week on Monday. Mondays are Magic Mondays where Carl and I discuss our magical and creative practices and share insights from our work. Join us at patreoncom forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious: Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry available from Chapar Books. You can find more at our publisher's website chapar.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. As usual, this episode of Rendering Unconscious is available to view at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube.
2: All right. Well, usually I ask people where they want to start, but with you, we're starting with this book because I love this book so much. It's so fun, the Jacques Lacan Foundation. So how did this book come about?
3: Um, um, sorry, that's, that's actually a very basic question and one that I've never been asked before. Um, lots of different um, things, really. Um, so I just done... Um, so my background is in visual art Um, and I had done a visual arts residency in Austin, Texas. Um, And I'd really been struck by the extent of um, British-American cultural differences. And it was interesting to me because I I live in Berlin and have the German of a toddler, but it it seemed much closer to a kind of British sensibility in a way than than being in in Austin. And I was also um, studying for a PhD. Um, And again, this thing of of being from um, a visual arts background um, and having had a a kind of post-school education that had been very, very different from being in a very traditional research-focused university. And a mixture of being completely intrigued by this and also... um, thinking some things were absolutely ridiculous and why didn't people see it? So there were those two things. And also, um, although I stopped going several years ago, I, I was in analysis for several years. And, and despite the kind of um, at times, slightly mocking tone of, of the book, um, I'm a big believer in psychoanalysis and something I've really benefited from. Um, and at the same time, I, I started to go to a lot of talks about psychoanalysis and this was also feeding into my PhD. And being kind of quite surprised at how, for a, a practice that, that, that is a practice, that is something that you do, that is so much about feeling a rapport with people, reading the kind of emotional temperature of a, a room, um, just how kind of crazy and awkward some of these psychoanalytic gatherings were. So I think those three things, academia, talks on psychoanalysis and um, a recent residen- residency in Texas just all somehow came together to make this novel. <laughs> um,
2: I love that. And I have, I have hosted gatherings like this, and I feel like your, uh, your analysis of them is very spot on. <laughs> it's like these characters, I know these characters, you know? <laughs> Not just the ones that are actually based on real people. <laughs>
3: because I only based one character on a definite person everyone Mm -hmm. meant to be a sort of uh you know a type um but the amount of people who have told me that they recognize publications or people in this book um so I think well I must have I must have got something right if so many people I mean a lot of people have told me I've not got the person that I've been trying to skewer right and I'm like but but who is the person Mm -hmm. (laughs) apart from um so I'm sure you, you guessed that the lead is um, uh, a slight, um, I hope, affectionate um, takeoff of um, jacques um, Alan Miller, but the the others were all just sort of made up, but, um,
2: but yeah. But they're definite types. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have had these experiences even like uh, early on in the book when there's a couple that comes in that are like the New York psychoanalysts and one of them has to use the restroom and stuff. <laughs> it's like, I've even had that experience of hosting a conference and having to bring people to the restroom. <laughs> so that's how spot on it was.
3: <laughs> Isabel Miller, um, who I know you've also had on the post uh, the podcast, we've had um, a couple of uh um I've never met her in real life but a few exchanges and she said she had been to a conference in the states on psychoanalysis where there had been this messy meal of ribs that had all been eaten and did I know about it so I was like oh wow these these
1: things happen
2: (laughs) (laughs) something in the unconscious (laughs) you tapped into (laughs) And I think I love it too Like we were saying Before we recorded um, Like you're receiving Mixed reviews People either kind of Love it or really don't Um, And I can't say I'm surprised but, But I do find that In the field in general People take themselves Too seriously And I find that really strange, because I feel like if you've been through psychoanalysis, um, and it's, you know, done something for you, you should be, have a little bit more of a sense of humor about things, even though, you know, like you said, it's a great practice. I do it for a living, because I believe in it. It really helped me in my life. Um, and and you also said you don't know that much about it. But if you've been through analysis, then you do, you know, you do know a lot about it, because that's really where it comes from, is from people's self-analyses. It's like all of this, kind of I get tired of like arguing over like what Lacan said and which seminar, which page and like how that changes theory and academics can do that. That's great for them. But for me, I'm really a clinician and, you know, I don't see the point. Like for me, it's like just take whatever is useful in, in the clinical work and go with that, you know.
3: And uh, Another thing that I found so strange, um, particularly through um, discussing some of the ideas in, in this book um, in, a, in an academic setting, was how many people um, had such strong views on what psychoanalysis was, who had never attended or were never letting on that they had attended a psychoanalytic session. And I, I found that bizarre that they had they had no... I mean, I felt it was like sort of, you know, I don't know, being, being an expert on, um, I don't know, sex and never having... being a virgin or, you know, anything. It seemed to me such a strange... Uh, to to take that kind of authoritative stance and never have actually experienced the practice of it um that was definitely something i kind of wanted to convey in the in the book that that kind of uh distance between theory and practice
2: yeah that happens a lot and i think also a lot of the big theorists are not practitioners or not people that have even been through analysis and i think that's really. Uh, change some aspects of the theory in the field in certain ways. And, you know, I always try to be very open-minded. And I'm like, if that's what you want to do, great, you know, enjoy it. But it's when they take the stance of then trying to be an authority without actually being a practitioner or having been through analysis that gets That's the problem for me. It's like, if you want to, you know, take the theory and run with it in whatever your field is in philosophy or, you know, people use a lot in film and stuff, that's wonderful. Like, go for it. But you also have to acknowledge that that is different than the actual practice. And if you haven't been through analysis yourself, I feel like the the only way you can really understand it is having gone through it yourself, you know. Yeah,
3: totally. I mean, I, um, I had always been interested in psychoanalysis, um, particularly in relation to film, um, and my of course my understanding changed completely once I started seeing an analyst. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's um, I I think in all the arts there's that tendency to to simply well I mean in, in life really sorry I'm being very vague you know but but to to search for the things that in a in a theory that will back up your own point of view that you've already established rather than being open to the experience of of something Um, sorry that sounds very kind of vague and hippie-ish but (laughs) but it's true yeah yeah
2: I find people often I mean I think I was just talking about this with Renata Saleko um who was on the podcast a few uh, weeks ago and uh, we were talking about that people find on the internet for example whatever fits their own point of view that they already have you know
3: I totally and I'm completely guilty of that all the time um yeah I'm I'm um, I, I'm I'm constantly if I, if I fall out with somebody over a um uh, a point of view about a, a book or a, a painting or something well sorry fall out's too strong a word disagree with somebody I can spend hours trawling through the internet until I find somebody that that proves in inverted commas my point of view so I'm you know, it's. I, I'm. I'm totally susceptible to myself. I'm not trying to take a kind of like moral high ground on it. More to kind of explore the, the the way we, um, constantly uh, sort of you know, re- rearrange the world to suit our own stories, and which you know is a very kind of, Lacanian view in in many respects. Um, although, um, I, I don't know. I wasn't particularly trying to illustrate Lacan's theories in in my novel, although I think there are elements of of that 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 come out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And how did you find your way towards psychoanalysis in the first place?
3: Um, Well, I had um, a friend who actually is now my partner um, who um, was um, at that point, um, uh, well, which would now probably be called a film programmer um, in the kind of uh, the the nuance of of changing terms in the art world. Um, And he was very interested in psychoanalysis and used to attend a literature and psychoanalysis reading group. Um, And I used to go to some of these too and be sort of fascinated by what people were discussing, but also the characters in this reading group. Um, And then um, I remember somebody saying to me, you know, you're always referencing psychoanalysis, but you've you've never been. And it was a point in my life when I was feeling quite anxious and directionless. And I I sort of thought, yeah, it is a bit one. It is a bit much to doing what I'm accusing these academics of, you know, wanting to be the expert without actually, you know, confronting what the 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 process and the experience of psychoanalysis. and two, you know, if I am going to try it, it's probably a good time to try it if I'm sort of at a bit of a crossroads and, and string. So I, I started going and um, I originally thought, well, as you know as well, psychoanalysis is, um, in, in most countries, it's, it's not something you can get through your health service or health insurance. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to pay for, for six months, give it a go, and then, yeah, four years later. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, if... um if money was no object I think I would do it indefinitely I I think it's such a uh, a helpful process and I've yeah I've always found it um I, I wish I'd wish I'd started doing it at 18 <laughs> I think I'd um yeah I think I think it's it's something that I'm um yeah I, but again it's that that distinction between uh psychoanalysis and kind of academic psychoanalytic culture um, I think are two often very different things those
2: are two very different things absolutely that's what I'm realizing I love psychoanalysis as a practice um, but I'm not so much into the academic psychoanalytic scene Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, I think I also really I think just academia for me in general I find frustrating because Um, I know people love to like argue and argue like points of theory and that's great if that's what you love to do, but I really don't like, like I I, I get frustrated when I see people give these like great presentations and then the audience kind of like picks apart what they like disagree with or, oh, but so-and-so said this at this time. And that doesn't make sense with what you said here. And it becomes this kind of, it feels like very vicious to me. Um, and, And I really kind of the opposite where it's like, uh, when I see someone present, I really take whatever I find useful out of it. Like, oh, this resonates with me, or this makes me think of this, or I could use this or think about this in a new way. And then that's it. I just leave the rest, you know, I, I'm just kind of the opposite where I like to find what's like useful out of things. I don't like to like tear things apart and find what's wrong with them so much. So, So I'm realizing I don't like being around that.
3: Yeah, and I, I think it's it's interesting. I've, I've met so many academics who are very snooty about Zizek and will say that he has he's quite repetitive or he's quite sloppy with his referencing. And I'm sure there is a lot of truth in that. But I also think there is a suspicion of somebody who is in that field who is able to connect with a wide variety of audiences and is able to apply theories across disciplines. Um, and I, I think there's also... Um, a lack of acknowledgement that that is quite threatening for um, a lot of traditional academics. Um, And yeah, I think that notion of, you know, academia. I mean, I was um, sorry, I'm being quite fake, but this was something I thought a lot about on the on the PhD and this coming from this art world to an academic world and also coming from the practice of psychoanalysis to theories about psychoanalysis. Um, you know, I was thinking about the European University. It has its um, roots in the the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. There's this idea of, of dogma, of following instruction. Um, whereas um, we look at the birth of, of psychoanalysis um, and the birth of uh the the kind of traditional arts not traditional but now traditional art school in the in the uk um and it's coinciding with the birth of museum culture um with um an idea of you know culture suddenly being for everyone being accessible um and i think that that is really quite quite profound and and i often um Felt during my studies, you know, I didn't want the the monk cell. I wanted the glitter of the nineteenth century arcade. You know, and it was um, I felt that that very, very strongly. Um, and um, yeah, I think I think that is is something that um. You know, if you if you say something to an academic about about that, they'll they'll get very huffy and be like, "Well, what point do you mean? And, and what about the this model? And, and what about the the liberal art colleges? And and you know, in one sense they're correct, but they are also, I think, again a bit like the the Zizek thing not not quite wanting to face that there is a kind of religious disposition almost in in academia that there is one right way to do it, and you follow it, and you follow a Uh, an idea that's very established that's that's not about breaking with the past that's that's not about undermining paradigms or or challenging them Um, and and that that is a very different mindset that isn't isn't really always compatible with a creative mindset Um, so it's my rather long and rambling answer no
2: I love it um, no, and I totally agree. And I feel like, especially nowadays, like there's a real pull to kind of tear that way of thinking down. But yet, even I find in academia, even when people kind of have the aesthetics of like tearing that down, it's still like within that structure. <laughs> and, and I find that really problematic too.
3: <laughs> I, I totally find that. I mean, I think, I think it's really um, one of the most kind of absolutely authoritarian rigid old school academics I encountered um, doing my PhD, um, wrote a lot about um, writers like Maggie Nelson. You know, and this is somebody, you know, working across disciplines, using theory in this very accessible, um, fun, immediate way. Um, but it, it was, um, you know, her, her view was it, was it was okay to write about these things in a strict academic sense, the idea that you might explore, you know, Maggie Nelson's practice through a similar practice, no, completely off limits, Um, and I I found, again, I found that really interesting, and also I felt it showed a lack of confidence, from my perspective it did, in the sense that you're you're almost saying that the artworks can't, or the, the practices can't speak for themselves, they need to be you know, backed up with a bibliography, (laughs) with, with all these types of referencing, like, like you were saying about going to these conferences and thinking, oh, well, I got something from that, or that resonated with me. Um, And, you know, those, those personal experiences, those um, senses of, of just something being, being very meaningful to you are, are as, as valid. And, probably going to reach more people than a very dusty academic paper that like only your supervisor and maybe if you're lucky one other student in your very narrow field will get out the library so I, I'm i yeah I'm totally for that that way of reacting and, and um, using knowledge
2: absolutely yeah especially when all of those papers are behind paywalls and nobody yeah. <laughs> can
3: access them <laughs> exactly it's even even more ridiculous I think
2: Definitely. Um, and I also remember when uh, like, uh, when I lived in New York, there was a Francis Bacon exhibit at the Met and it was incredible. Um, I think it had like 55 or 53 of his paintings, these like huge paintings, you know, and I actually was so like struck by them and overwhelmed when I left. I was just like wandering around the city for like an hour before I was like, where am I going? Like, what am I even doing now? It was just like overwhelming. And I remember talking about it and uh, I had a philosopher friend um, who was like very frustrated that there wasn't enough like context, like written about things, and like how do you have an exhibit without like the kind of context of like the historical place and what it meant at the time and all of this stuff? Is like that you can't you can't have art without that context. And for me, I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I, was, like you, I mean, you can add the context for those people who want to read it. I never read those things, you know. I was like, I just want to experience the artwork.
3: I think also as well there's like an implicit assumption when you take that view that the artwork is lacking that there has to be um well both that the artwork is lacking and both that there are equivalents I mean the artist is making that piece because they cannot express that in words or um you know I mean I I, I think it's it's like um you know if, if you read a description of Mozart it would not be like listening to Mozart <laughs> and I, I think that I, I don't think there are I don't think that different um just as I don't think there's there's alternate um there's equivalence you know there's a literary equivalent of a piece of music or of a painting I again I don't think that there's um a, you know academic or or even like textual equivalents for something that is um an experience I mean therapy is um you know it's a it's an emotional physical experience as, as well as a an intellectual one as 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 you know sorry I shouldn't shouldn't be saying that to a therapist
1: sorry well, of that. course you can mm-hmm.
3: but um but yeah so I yeah I, I I'm totally with you I think that there's there's so many ways to appreciate um the arts um and uh, 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 reading the artist's biography is is just one of them.
2: Yeah, I I always like to do that afterwards. I like to experience art first, and then if I find it compelling, then I'll I'll read about the person, and then usually I'm like, oh, wow, and then learning the context about the person makes it even more interesting, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I like to do it that way, definitely. Um, Yeah, I don't like, also, I don't like um, trailers for films anymore because... um, have become much more generic and they take you through the story and I'm like I, I'm always in this thing like I just want to see a few film stills before I go I don't want to know what's going to happen at the end
2: no they show you the whole thing now it's yeah. really weird
3: I know. <laughs> They're like, well, why would you go and see it I feel they need to leave it on a cliffhanger that seems to me quite um, a basic basic point of a trailer but um, I, I think I'm alone with that that view
2: <laughs> how did you get into the arts in the first place
3: um, well, I went to um, art college, so my BA and my MA are both in fine arts, um, and when I was studying, so I'm, I'm 43 now, um, and now I think there's lots more creative writing um, and sort of joint programmes where you can do something more creative, uh, more academic, a bit more like in the States. But um, When I was there, there were were virtually no undergraduate creative writing programmes. And I also do really enjoy painting um, and still do that. Um, But art school seemed to be the place where you could do anything. You know, you could form a band, you could make a film. Um, And so that was, for me, where the... um, yeah, just the sort of loosest boundaries about how to be creative and what was allowed were. And I think that really, really informed um, what I write. I mean, I, st- I always wrote when I was at art college and I was always very supported both by tutors and other students who seemed to think that was a completely normal thing to do that one day a week you might sit in your studio and just do some writing. Um, and a lot of my... Um, friends who were writers also came from art school um, and I think increasingly that's that's been more and more acknowledged. Um, so as you get writers like Deborah Levy, um, who you know went to what was then Dartington College of Arts, talking about how that background really shaped her, the texts she encountered and her view of writing. And I know Tom McCarthy has been very keen to position himself as a writer in the art world. Um, that, that makes makes a lot of, um, of sense to me. I, I also think what, what I I mean, of course, there's, there's a million things that are problematic with the art world as there are with any um, organisation, institutional structure, not, not least the fact that this money is such a massive thing and so much art is now seen as a, a luxury product. But I do think... Um, this this sort of looseness of boundaries is really helpful for for creative people, and um, I find I find any art form that refers solely to itself a bit boring. And I, I sometimes I find when I talk to people who've been on creative writing MAs, I find that kind of the way in which the writing becomes quite mannered just does not appeal to me. I'm I, I want a writer to tell me that they've been influenced by, by music, by a, f- by a film, by fashion, um, by politics, rather than a writer who says, well, I like this writer. Um, but for me, I, I much prefer that way of working. Although saying that, there's, there's lots of ver- writers who've had very old-fashioned literary educations um, who I love. So, you know, I'm not saying there's only one way to produce stuff, but that's definitely what, what's always suited me.
2: Yeah, and that fits with psychoanalysis as well too, because Freud, of course, loved like art and literature, and and then like Dalí really mm. loved Freud's theories and like made artwork from that, and then Lacan used Dalí's writing in his yeah. like early work, you know. So they, they it does feed each other.
3: De- definitely, and I think there's um although I'm I'm always um slightly peeved in that I think the artists are more interested in the psychoanalysts than the psychoanalysts are in the artists. <laughs> I was always reading stories about surrealists who'd gone to see Freud and Lacan and they'd been a bit like, oh, another one. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I definitely think there is that, that cross-pollination. I think they're both disciplines that, that take from other disciplines in a really positive way. And um, yeah, that, that's very appealing to me.
2: Yeah, I had I had a friend in New York, we used to joke that we were going to have a psychoanalytic conference on the arts, but we were going to have a list of all the artists and, and writers that they were not allowed to talk about. Because everybody uses the same references because they're like the people that like on reference it So It's like you can't talk about Joyce you can't talk about Beckett. <laughs>
3: it would force people to to make such kind of more interesting novel links I think you should do that I I would I'd be so interested in going
2: totally I realized what I did was um I ended up writing a book that came out at the end of 2020 on uh, psychoanalysis and and the arts and I realized that's kind of what I did I just basically wrote about all these artists that I love and that I found um I was specifically talking about Lacan's con concept of scansion and how like disrupting narratives is really useful. And then how people do have been doing this in the arts like forever. Um, mm-hmm. at least since yeah, for the past 150 years at least. Um, so I kind of started with like photography and the symbolists and worked my way all the way up to current modern day artists and I didn't reference any of the artists that like on and everybody talks about all the time Dalí's in there you know the surrealist you have to as part of the, the history but uh, um, other than that they're pretty all avant-garde artists that I don't think I've seen any analysts writing about so
3: oh sounds fascinating uh, really great yeah
2: yeah, that was fun. But I didn't even realize that was, that was what I was doing until, like, very recently. I was like, wait, I kind of did make that, <laughs> the thing that I used to joke about.
3: <laughs> it, it's funny. There's a lot of um, surrealist female artists that I absolutely love. But I sort of, sometimes I feel my heart sink when I read another sort of, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, Louise Bourgeois or or Leonora Carrington or someone, and I, I, feel like is there is there more to say? I mean, of course, in one sense, there's always more to say, but I, I feel like you know, but but what? Why don't we? Why don't we look at? Uh, yeah, wouldn't it be interesting to look at someone we've not not already all, um, you know? And and there's always that danger then that they become almost like a sort of, you know, a uh, kind of. Uh, um, I'm trying, well, I suppose that they 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 come to you know to signify a certain type of artwork, and we rather than us actually looking at the the kind of radical nature of those artworks. And I think we to to do that properly, you need an element of freshness. I think is is always yeah really helpful.
2: Yeah, I feel like women artists were so excluded for so long, and then that came to the forefront like we've been excluding you know all these different artists let's make sure we include some and then now that they've included like a few of each kind that have been excluded then that those are the ones that are talked about and that's it you know it's like okay now we've included them
3: <laughs> totally and I it's funny I feel like that a bit in um I mean this is maybe a, a whole other um that's okay that's but but, but it did <laughs> a novel in that um you no, know, I was I was writing in the wake of Me Too, and um, I was very aware that a lot of the books that get um, a lot of attention and publicity now generally are by female authors, and it's really changed. You know, I grew up um, in a in a period where it's much more kind of one a, a better word laddie, you know, like Brett Easton Ellis was the sort of cool novelist, and a lot of these very sort of macho epic novels and a lot of emphasis on kind of um you know the system novel as as well or the the state of the nation novel and I think it's really good that we now people are are recognizing that there's room to to talk about novels that talk about um inner lives and women's inner lives but I also felt that I'd suddenly reached saturation point with this and particularly it almost felt from conversations I was having that it was a a betrayal of the the sisterhood to to write a story where a woman was not a kind of a a victim in some way. And I I found that quite problematic because I felt it was a sort of, you know, to only see one's sexuality in terms of victimhood, I felt it meant that, um, you know, a lack of agency and also a kind of, um, uh, a saying almost that, you know, women don't have politically incorrect desires um, or and and you know sexual desire is often politically incorrect or um, and I I thought well I just it was locked down and you know gone through between I was, I was like I just want to create this like completely sort of hedonistic red-blooded amoral woman who's just sort of like you know charging through everything um, you know, being, being quite like, almost like from a very of the moment, but also almost like a heroine from another time, a sort of like Becky Sharp, Araviste kind of character. Um, and yeah, I felt, um, I felt anyway, that was kind of a, a reaction to this sort of dominant view of, of what was feminist in, in the arts generally and being grateful for it, but also finding it slightly problematic. Um,
2: I love the inner life of your character, and I, I found her very relatable, <laughs> so I don't know what that says about me, if she's amoral, but she but she's, uh, you know, I love that she's, like, going through all the things that women have to deal with, like, dealing with her period and, you know, like hooking up with this guy and, you know, also, like, running and trying to fix her hair and, like, look presentable for these events, you know, it's like, I think a lot of us have been there, you know? <laughs>
3: It was interesting in the, in the calm being divisive. I think the class politics have also um, been um, split people a bit. The the most positive experience I've had is from uh, you know women working in arts and academia who are supporting themselves, who are like, this is totally what it's like. And the the most kind of um, I don't have negatives are even the right word but but suspicious um responses have been from the the kind of women that they're emulating the um you know um, from connecticut yes <laughs> very you know um yeah privately educated um very well connected women who've, who've maybe um i don't know maybe i'm making assumptions but i i have sense perhaps have got somewhere because of having a certain amount of of connections and um, cultural cachet and you know I don't I don't disapprove of that in itself I mean I think it's so hard to work in these fields like if you know you're not going to use connections if you've got that you know not use them if you've got them that's this but um I felt there was definitely a slight discomfort from some people whereas there was a, a more joyous like oh yeah yeah it's like that and you know you do have to do the photocopying for this incompetent person for a long time before you get a foot in the ladder and and that kind of um uh, the the reality of how many of these so-called glamorous jobs involve a lot of administration
2: absolutely no I think you dealt with the class issues really well as well and like yeah, you know, I'm someone, I had to, I worked full-time waitressing while I was in graduate school, which I don't think anyone else in my class did, you know. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a lot of work, but I think, uh, I, like, even her, like, putting the the biscuits, putting the cookies and the muffins in her purse. It's like, I totally used to be like, oh, are these like leftover from the event? Like, "Mm -mm, let me take them home because that's breakfast for a few days, you know?
3: (laughs) The idea for that came because um, the psychoanalytic um, reading group that um, me and my partner used to go to, um, it used to be in Senate House and they'd often have conferences in other rooms and we would... Try. We'd sometimes get there early because we were students ourselves at that time. We'd, we'd try and get there early if there was a conference and time it so we could have some of the sandwiches and the biscuits from the conferences and get a free dinner before going in. So that was very much linked in my mind. Psycho- psychoanalytic uh, reading group and free sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> I think that seep- seeped into my uh, my uh, text and world that I created.
2: I love it. Yeah. And what did you think of Austin? I love I, I was like, this person has definitely spent time in Austin with all the keep Austin weird buttons and things.
3: <laughs> I mean it was funny as well because um I don't I don't really know many other people from Austin other than the people I met there. And yes, yeah, so I was doing this art residency, and like the uh, protagonist, I don't drive. So I only met um, other artists. Um, in East Austin and I was sort of walk into the centre and stuff and then it was as well that thing about not having a car so in one sense it seemed quite affluent but when you were walking I'd often see homeless people or people if it was early you know going to cleaning jobs and stuff um, so I had I had a sense of Austin not being particularly wealthy and being incredibly hipstery and everyone doing creative things and, and which I loved I mean everyone was so friendly um and very, in, in, a, in a British way, I was like, why is everyone being so nice? You know, why do people want to have a chat with you in the supermarket? But it was, you know, it was, it was lovely. I really, um, I definitely like to go back there with, with either having learned to drive or with someone who could drive. Um, yeah, I loved it. But then it was, it was interesting. I, um, somebody made a comment about not liking Austin to me. And they said, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just like too many tech bros and you know, lots of money, and I, I, sort of felt like, oh, I didn't, I, I never saw that that Austin. Um, so yeah, it was that was quite a strange um comment me. I Suddenly, you know, this sort of like, oh, there's other Austins that someone else has seen. Um, but yeah, my my experience was very positive, and I, I definitely like to go back. I, I, and what? So you you. Are you from austin or you no I'm
2: from Miami but I've oh. been there um yeah with friends the same thing that we're very creative so I've seen that kind of creative side and and, and all the hipsters
3: <laughs> I would love to go to Miami I mean I, I it's it's interesting about this you know talking about a book in which somebody all their references are through film and advertising but I, I I've seen so many films set in Miami and I just um I'm sure it's nothing like the reality, but I, I have an incredibly sort of glamorous view of, of Miami. Yeah, own. you have to
2: tell me what you think of Miami now. I have to hear.
3: <laughs> it's, all, it's all sort of cocaine cowboys and uh, beautiful art deco architecture and disco and, um, yeah, just sort of glamour and Glamour—you're probably not meant to admit you find glamorous, but uh, seems, seems very good on the Scarf—is Scarface set in Miami? Um,
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
3: that's, that's kind of my view of Miami and disco. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's if that's accurate. I imagine maybe it's not on a day-to-day level, but um, well,
2: it's the same thing. It depends on what area you're in, but um, you yeah, know, I'm the I'm around your same age. I'm 45, and so I grew up in Miami. I was a teenager in the 90s and. Um, and that was just kind of like just after the cocaine cowboys were having their heyday. So I was like a little kid when that was happening, and I kind of grew up in the aftermath of that. Um, and yeah, so it was really it was really interesting and intense, I would say. Uh, there's definitely like a huge drug culture there, I would say. Still, I mean, I haven't, I haven't lived there in 15 years now. Um, but it definitely, it's like just very normal for people just to be partying. It's definitely a party place, you know, and people go out to clubs. Nobody, I mean, we used to not leave the house till midnight, you know, be like, if you went out before midnight, like, why would you do that? It's like not even something that people did, you know, (laughs) like, you just like wait till after midnight to go out. Um, and the clubs are all open till like four or five in the morning. And then after that, they have like after hours clubs. So it's definitely like a party disco. Place, So I would say that's accurate, especially if you say the Art Deco is mostly on Miami Beach. um, And thankfully that that area has been preserved because like one woman like really fought to preserve it a long time ago. So that was very good because otherwise it would probably be all these high rises. Um, When you go further up Miami Beach, it turns into like these huge like Trump Tower kind of buildings. And that's really sad because they used to be, I mean, Miami has like such an old gangster culture, kind of from the beginning from like the early 20th century kind of gangsters like Meyer Lansky ended up dying there and Lucky Lucky, Luciano all those people like were down there so it was Al Capone he died there too so it's kind of has this kind of gangster history Mm. and 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 more North Miami Beach used to have they built all these uh, rows of hotels but like these little like motels um, from like the 50s where they would be like these like two-story little motels on the beach, but they would all have like themes. They have like kind of like futuristic motel or like one that was like Arabian Nights with like camels and like people in Arabian dress and things like that, you know? And even the hotel, like the hotel that Scarface was uh, taking place at, that was a real hotel that was in the neighborhood that I grew up in. I grew up in Coconut Grove and it was this kind of disco hotel. Somebody actually wrote a book about it that I just read last summer, which is really great. Oh, um, I want to read that book. <laughs> I'll let you know because it's a really amazing book. And the, and that hotel was like one of these themed hotels where every room had a different uh, theme. And yeah, and it ended up getting destroyed in this hurricane. There was this hurricane in 1992, Hurricane Andrew, that, that destroyed it. But it had already kind of gone out of business when all those guys kind of got arrested and, you know. That, that all went down. Um, but yeah, it's really great, it's called Hotel Scarface. And that's how I learned, I didn't realize that because when we were in high school, we used to kind of hang out there when it was abandoned, you know, mm-hmm. like like teenagers do. Um, and I, I interviewed the guy who wrote, who wrote the book because I was like, I was like, wait, there's a book about that old hotel we used to kind of squat in, you know, <laughs> it was like, it was like, that's weird. Like, is that hotel like a thing? And then I read about it. And I, and I remember knowing in the 90s when we were hanging out there that it was this kind of like old disco hotel. But like, what does that mean to like a 15 year old in the 90s? Like, this like, sounds very, yeah, like old disco. It's like a different era, you know? Um, But then when I read the book, it kind of made everything in my life and it makes sense. I was like, oh, that was what was happening. And that was it. Put like all these pieces together. It's pretty fun.
3: Yeah. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It's it's funny. I mentioned being a teenager in the 90s. um, And I, I loved being a teenager in the 90s. And then I, I don't know. I mean, I, I felt very conscious writing the book, um, that there's there's moments when, you know, she's looking back to Kate Moss, this sort of 90s icon and this this is being revived. And I think there was definitely a sort of feeling of nostalgia, a way of being able to write about that or have little touches of that period. I um, I feel it was sort of the last, maybe this shows me getting older, but I sort of feel it was almost like the last period where, you know, on, on a sort of mass scale, people like lacked cynicism. Um, possibly because we were all kind of just consuming and destroying the planet without realising. But um, it, it definitely felt to me a very hopeful time being a teenager in the 90s and and very um, full of possibility. And I suppose being on the, the cusp before everything was was digital. It, um, yeah, I think
2: that made a difference because I think the digital, I think the internet, you know, of course, is great in a lot of ways. We can do this and connect and everything. But it also gives, I feel like this like cynicism that you're discussing and this kind of self Reflexivity, where we're kind of always looking at ourselves, looking at ourselves, you know it's like that added this extra kind of layer of gaze that I don't feel like was there before, you know we were just in it like living life and messing messing, messing things up like you said, and we didn't really understand what was going on in the bigger world outside of our circle I mean of course, I'm sure older people did or people that are into politics and stuff, but at least for me as a teenager then it's like you know as a teenager i wasn't aware of like global events or politics or anything that was happening it was just like in my life you know and i feel like teenagers now people don't have that because everyone's aware of everything that's going on because it's all over the internet all the time
3: yeah totally and i um i feel like again i mean perhaps it was a, a false confidence but i think it gave me and my friends a lot of confidence to um you know to just we we you know oh i'll you know i'm going to go to the city and reinvent myself the famous artist or writer or singer or something. And that that felt possible in a way that even though they're kind of those things are in a way more accessible through the internet they don't they don't feel it it feels more sort of anxiety inducing or it, it does to to me um, and I, I definitely felt as well in the book I didn't want it to be an internet novel but I also felt this sort of world of images that that Nikki inhabits couldn't have existed in the same way pre-internet. Um, and um, I mean, she's somebody who's um, you know, very happy with her appearance in the book. But um i I definitely um I mean, so I'm going off on a, on a tangent. We love tangents, They're associations. <laughs> <Yeah>. no, <laughs> I, I definitely didn't um feel body conscious in the in the 90s I, I i didn't have those sort of like people I, I think i i was i was very into clothes as a teenager me and my friends were obsessed with making kind of crazy outfits to go out clubbing in and having fancy dress parties and that was something i i absolutely loved but i didn't equate it with a kind of in a, in a way with what I, I looked like i mean obviously i did in like what the costume was or something but i do think there was something about not having this constant sort of real not real you know instagram everybody it's it's real people's real lives except they're very filtered and staged and um you know it's um it's a like i i was setting up the um the computer and um my, my partner said oh don't put it that that's really unflattering if you put it at that angle and got me a box to put the computer on and I was like you know I'm glad he did that I realized like oh yeah I've got got a much firmer jaw <laughs> with the, with the but, but you know these are I don't think these are things that that me and my friends ever had to think about um which is quite liberating in a way um you know I, I um yeah I sort of um I, I taught for a while in an art college and um remember one one Australian girl and she said when it's summertime we all post pictures in our bikinis and have a competition to see who can get the most likes and I thought oh imagine having that when you're 18 like the pressure I was like couldn't quite believe it
2: (laughs) yeah I'm very glad that I grew up without the internet it's like nice to have it now but I'm really glad that I didn't grow up with it or imagine like You know, your history is never erased. Like everything you do is online forever. It's like, mm, I guess, I guess for them, like everybody else's is too. (laughs) But it's like, I'm glad I don't have that.
3: (laughs) I think so many embarrassing things. I uh, I think you're, when you're younger, you're kind of much more flippant and you don't think about the consequences. And, you know, I I sort of think, oh God, you know, I'm sure I'd have been cancelled for some you know, ill-thought throwaway remark, um, or yeah, just oh, I'm so so glad to to not not have that as a teenager.
2: Absolutely, yeah. and not have your parents be able to see what you're doing on the oh, internet. I, <laughs> that would be awful, awful nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I also have to mention you brought up Kate Moss. This is also like the uh, best best book cover ever in existence. Wow, well, what an eye-catching book cover for real. I, My husband husband saw it, he's like, that's an amazing book cover. He makes books, so I was like, it really is.
3: There is a story behind this book cover, actually. Um, Oh, please tell. Well, I I designed the book cover, although obviously it's a copy of the Calvin Klein advert. But um, I, yeah, I thought, it's a small press. I'm not particularly well-known author. Kate Kate Moss in the book, Kate Moss Sells. If I have Kate Moss and the word Lacan, people will react to this
2: book wonderful
3: but then I was like how to get this picture of Kate Moss and um so I emailed lots of people and um everyone was saying no um or you know well we would expect this many thousand pounds to print it and then I thought there's been a lot of people who photograph Kate Moss who are in some hot water now post me too (laughs) so focused on these (laughs) photographers like can I use this Um, and then this guy's studio got back and they said yeah you can use it you can have the image for free because I sent a screen grab Um, but obviously you'll pay for retouching Um, and then they sent me a list of the retouching costs which were like started at a thousand dollars and then I thought, well, if if the text is sharp, it won't matter if there's a slight blur, it will sort of play with the whole kind of off the, the media, it's in a magazine kind of feel. So um, I just said, oh, no, it's fine. You know, we'll we'll just have the screen grab. And they were a bit surprised, but they'd already sort of put in writing that we could use this. But they had specified only for 1,000 books. So if the print run sells out... Um, it's, it's actually doing quite well, so it actually might. But the, sadly, the second uh, print run will probably not be as good and may not have Kate Moss on the cover. Or maybe I can do a painting of Kate Moss or something. If
2: but we. it makes it more
3: special then.
2: Yes, you gotta you get, it, get in on it now and get the great cover while it lasts. Exactly. There's only exactly. a thousand of these books in existence.
3: Yes, yes. <laughs> and then it, then it stops. So yeah, you've, you've got a hope. Well, what, fingers crossed, may become a collector's item. <laughs>
2: exactly I love it it's a fantastic cover
3: but I love I mean I felt like she was such a perfect kind of um person to put in the book in terms of you know she was the kind of last you know people talk about her as being the last supermodel but but what in effect they mean is that she was the last model that didn't have to sort of promote herself or you know that the the fact that People are shocked if they hear her speak. You know, she she is the ultimate woman you can project your desires onto. And we don't know anything about her. To well, we do obviously through the tabloids and stuff. But we, you know, we she's this notoriously private person and has this kind of old world mystique, I think. Um, but also, you know, from a from quite an ordinary background, which um, I thought was quite important.
2: Yeah, I used to have her up in my room in the nineties. <laughs> Kate Moss and Claudia Schiffer.
3: Yeah. (laughs) They seem two very different women. Why Kate and Claudia? I'm intrigued by that. I don't know. I liked them. Yeah.
2: They were, they were, they were, what was it in the 90s? Yeah. And Cindy Crawford, I guess too, but I don't think I had her up. I had Kate and Claudia. And I Anna think- Nicole Smith, it, you know what it was? It was these uh, these like guest ads, these guest ads and these Calvin Klein ads. Yeah. Claudia Schiffer and Anna Nicole Smith for those guest ads.
3: I didn't think of that. I liked, um, I like Kate Moss and then there were also, maybe this is like my uh, cinematic sleazy Miami fixation, but then <laughs> there were a load of um, Tom Ford adverts, like sort of I think, I think it was like around 2000, so a bit later. And they were like really playing with that kind of like sort of disco sleeves, but very high glam. And I, I had, I ripped out those adverts to put on my wall. I thought they were, I mean, I was, you know, cold gray British day, this like palm trees and like, you know. Bright colors. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Everyone, everyone with a tan looking like they were partying hard. I was like, oh, I love, I love this. <laughs> I Absolutely.
2: Remember, what were you going to say?
3: Oh, just that I thought it was interesting um, that, that Kate Moss did a Desert Island Discs recently. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, it's so British, um, and sometimes so awful. Um, they have it on Radio 4 and it's a celebrity is asked to pick uh, eight songs um, and they're, they're asked to sort of talk about why they've picked them. And I can't remember which song it was, but she talked about um, aspirations to leave Croydon. Um and she said about going to America and her dad driving them around in this big hire car, and the sun was shining and everything was glossy. And she sort of felt like this is where I want to be. <laughs> and I, I thought like, oh, I'm really glad she says that. Really fits with my presentation of her. <laughs> so I was, um, but yeah, I think that that sort of, um, I mean, it's in. You must have maybe had the opposite as an American moving to Europe, but I definitely had that kind of. Um, obsession with America growing up um, and American culture and um, particularly American counterculture, I think, and that um, I felt so informed by the, it felt to me so informed by the landscape um, and this sense of things being vast and bigger and being able to almost become lost in it that I I didn't feel you can have in, in Europe, although there's lots of lovely Things, but I wondered what made what made you want to do the opposite and come to, to Europe?
2: Oh, I got married. I, yeah. I really wanted to get out of Florida. Um, so I basically just worked as hard as I could, went to graduate school so I could get out of Florida, because it, even though it is fun to be in those kinds of things, I think for vacation better. Yeah. But living there, it's a little bit dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> You know, things happen. I've been held up at gunpoint, knife point, all sorts of things have happened. So yeah, so it's actually like uh, much more fun to look at or to just visit for a weekend or a week or two. Um, but growing up there is a little difficult. I think also if you're not, you know, uh, from like a nicer area, you know, if you're like maybe in a nicer area, that's uh he had that different kind of like you said like lifestyle the, the Connecticut girls I'm sure there's plenty of Connecticut girls in Miami but I wasn't one of them <laughs> um but I did I did go to private school my parents sent me to uh to uh, Episcopalian school when I was little um but it was basically because like the public school like if I had gone into the school that was like I would be fed into because of my neighborhood. It was like not a safe school, basically, you know. And and even my high school, there was like riots and things like that, you know. It was it? It's uh, it's not a very organized place, mm. Miami. It's it can be fun, but it's not very organized. And if I didn't have kids, but if I did, I wouldn't choose to raise them there. I not think it's a good idea. But I also heard it's pretty different now. I think a lot of people have moved down there uh, especially during the pandemic apparently a lot of people from new york have moved down there and it's getting like more and more gentrified and um yeah so things are getting more expensive but it's it's been expensive for a long time but still it still can be yeah pretty sketchy you know there's a lot of people with guns and things like that in america texas there's a lot of people with guns too um so yeah so i worked really hard to get out of florida Uh, and I left when I was 30 and then I went to California for my postdoc and then I moved to New York. I lived in New York for the last 10 years, um, which has its own kinds of (laughs) things happening. (laughs) I've been followed home from New York too, from the subway, you know, but that's, I guess it's just how the States is. Um, so I, it's nice to be here because we, we left, uh, we lived in Stockholm before my husband's Swedish. I met him in New York, um, and so we were deciding which way should we move and we decided to move this way um and uh, stockholm is is a nice city and then, now we live in this like little town in the countryside and there's like literally no crime at all um yeah like at all so uh, i love that like the he he he's a writer and they asked him at the local newspaper to help like temp over the summer while people are on vacation and they, the newspaper like can't they like can't come up with things to write about you know it's like there's like nothing happening and like no crime it's like once once a week like on saturday outside the little like restaurant that has a little pub area then like someone will get in a bar fight and that's like literally the only thing that happens all week so it's kind of nice okay. so that's why i like it here
3: <laughs> everything, everything in london before um which i lived for a long time before i moved to berlin and um yeah, I mean, there there are issues. You know, it's a, it's a capital city, and there's there's quite a lot of um, issues with heroin. Um, but it's also very safe. Like you can come home on your own at four in the morning and feel completely okay. And I think there's very few cities you can places you can do that. And yeah, it, for me, it's just um, yeah, it's just it's just such a nice nice feeling. And um, yeah, also rent control is still a thing here. So. Rent control and safety, it's yeah, it's a, a nice city to be in.
2: Those are two very good things.
3: Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I um I've I've actually never been to Scandinavia, but um I've heard wonderful things about, about Sweden and how beautiful it is and it's
2: really nice. It's really organized. Um, it's very clean. There's like really I mean, of course, Greta comes from here, and, and she, you know, complains about things the Swedish government do, does, which I'm sure are valid things. That They do mining and things on, like, indigenous land, which is not good. But overall, I think compared to a lot of other places, they're doing pretty well with those kinds of things, and... Um, yeah, like you can just jump in any lake and it's clean, you know, <laughs> like like if you see a lake and you want to pull over and go swimming, you can do that and you don't have to worry if it's polluted or anything. Everything is clean. So that's, to me, mind-blowing. Like it, it, when I grew up in Miami, it was then you could do that, but you can't do that now. And now with the, with the, water's getting warmer. There's always like these weird bacterias and stuff in the oceans. It's not even that safe to go swimming a lot of the time. Like my mom said, they're having that again now. Um, so you have to be really careful of like making sure it's safe to go in the water, you know, and that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. So it's really, Florida is a beautiful place that's very highly mismanaged. Hmm. It does not have a good government and it never has a good government. So <laughs>
3: Well, I, I'm British. We've just got Liz Truss as our prime minister. So I, d- I don't know. I can take no uh, <laughs> no high ground in bad
2: government. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of governments are competing <laughs> for, for who could be the worst government. <laughs> there's a lot of runners up. <laughs> but definitely fun place to visit. I don't want to discourage you from visiting Miami. It's fun to visit. I like going back there to visit because then I can just go to all the fun spots you know and eat the good food and yeah see all the fashionable people and yeah go to all my favorite places and I don't have to sit in traffic (laughs) and I don't have to commute to work an hour and a half you know so it's good.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds sounds fabulous.
2: Yeah I'll send you the links and the The uh, uh, New York, I feel the same way about like I always dreamt of going to New York and it was amazing to live in New York. But then after you're there, like five years, you realize like you have to work so much to be able to pay your rent and your rent for your office. You don't get to do all the things that you get to do when you want to be in New York. You know, it's like, oh, I would love to go to a museum on on a Saturday when I have off. But, you know, I live in Queens and then it's going to be two hours on the train commute and I'm just not going to do that. You just stay home, you know. (laughs) <laughs> so better just to visit.
3: I felt like that in London, definitely. I felt that like I was just working all the time and not doing anything. Yeah, it seemed pointless to be in in that that city for if if that was going to be my my life uh, from then on. But...
2: Exactly. And the one <laughs> other thing I have to mention before we wrap up, I know we have to go, but um, you also talk about Kate Moss and Johnny Depp,
3: ah. and and when
2: your characters go into the Halloween costumes store. <laughs>
3: I know there hadn't been the case, the court case when I wrote that, um, and I, I did think, oh, if I'd been writing that after the court case, maybe I would have taken that out. It seemed a bit sort of, um, yeah, just a kind of, yeah, just sort of car crash with no witnesses. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I, yeah, that was um, that was written bef- before the the court case. Yeah, but um, yeah, so it seems quite quite a bit darker than I intended. Now to have that that reference. <laughs> I don't know.
2: Yeah, but it was it was a fun reference though because they were cute in the '90s. So
3: oh, they were so cute. They were looking <laughs> little couple. We um, loved
2: them. Yeah. <laughs> well,
3: thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Um, yeah, thank you so much, and really lovely talking to you.
1: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with writer and artist Susan Finley about her book, The Jacques Lacan Foundation, which I highly recommend. Be sure to follow her at Instagram at Susan Ellen Finley, and check out her website, SusanFinley.co.uk. As always, you can follow me on social media at Rasin underscore. That's R A W S I N underscore at Twitter and Instagram, and at TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. And now a song from Carl in my first album, Switching Mirrors. This is called A Slightly Sexual Way of Living. Enjoy.
0: goth on the inside, a slightly sexual way of living, doing what will keep your, were, still are, to close, I will, over to the mirror.